For this morning, James 4, we're just going to do three verses. This is one of those passages, James 4, it's, you, you don't want to divide it up anywhere, but we have to, so I've decided to stop after verse 3, and we'll pick it up in verse 4 next time. But let me read these first three verses for us. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This week in my devotionals, I was reading 2 Samuel, and there's the exchange in the start of 2 Samuel where David is now king and his general Joab goes to war against Abner, Saul's general. There was not what we would call a peaceful transition of power. <laughs> and Joab and Abner's two armies went to fight. They began by meeting in a field and both sides decided to put forward one of the young men. And I think the idea was that the two men would fight and whoever won, that army won and the other would surrender. And it's a way to avoid bloodshed, I guess. There's a couple examples of that in the Old Testament. I don't know of any of them that ever worked. <laughs> and so the two men met in the field and they both grabbed each other by the head, the text says, and ran the sword through the other one right away. And they both fell dead almost immediately. And so now both sides spill out into the battlefield and the war begins, Abner's side's begins to lose and he begins running away where Joab's men are pursuing and Joab's two brothers uh, uh, Ashael and uh, Abishai uh, begin pursuing Abner and Ashael is closing in on him and Ashael's fast and I picture it as one of the scenes where they're you know like running through kitchens and across you know balconies and apartment complexes kind of thing it describes him as dodging back and forth and Ashael keeps gaining on on Abner, and Abner is yelling at him to, you know, leave, leave me alone, leave me alone. <laughs> and you know, I'm not going to leave you alone. You're the general of the other army. And Abner says, why don't you go just plunder somebody else's stuff? Why do you need to kill me? And Ashel ignores him. And Abner, of course, throws his spear behind him then and runs Ashel through and he falls dead. Abner then stands up on a hill and shouts down to to Joab, and his question to Joab is very, I don't know, penetrating. He says, shall the sword devour forever, Joab? Shall the sword devour forever? Why can't we have peace? If you remember how the story goes, Joab agrees to peace and goes to give Abner a hug and runs him through with the sword. <laughs> David doesn't deal with it. David says, I, 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 can't, I can't touch that. May the Lord deal with him. And of course, that marks David's 40 years as king with turmoil, with conflict, with bloodshed, with war, because it began with war. And you still have Abner's question ringing in your ears, don't you? Why can't we have peace? And that's really the question that James raises up. Why can't people have peace with God? Why can't people have peace in the church? Why isn't there more harmony? Why isn't there more peace? It's true on an individual level with a person who says, why can't I have peace with God? It's true on the corporate level when a person says, why is the church marked by such conflict and strife? Why don't we have peace with one another? 
The church, after all, is supposed to be marked by love. It's supposed to be marked by peace. The end of James 3, the verse we looked at last week, and the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so this idea is that the church should be marked by peace. John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new command I give to you that you will love one another. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says that he was going to go visit the Corinthians He had said back in chapter one that he'd already told him he was gonna show up, but he decided not to. And he explains why in chapter 12. He says, I was afraid that I would come and I would find conflict there. You think, Paul, why would you be scared about conflict in church? After all, the church is marked by love and peace and unity, especially the Corinthian church, right? That's what's behind Paul's appeal to the Philippians when he says, I challenge you, stand firm in the faith. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Christ Jesus. Stand firm in one mind, striving together. And that word striving together doesn't mean everybody striving. (laughs) Striving together is an idiom in in Greek. It means that you're all pulling in the same way. You're all working at peace and harmony with the horses strive together. They're not biting at each other. They're pulling together. And yet that's hardly ever the case. Remember 2 Corinthians 7, 5, earlier to the Corinthians. Paul said that when he arrived in Macedonia, he was tormented because he had conflict within and strife without. He was, he was not at peace inside of him and there was conflict outside of him. 2 Timothy 2, 23, Paul says, resist, refuse ignorant and foolish speculations. Don't answer hypothetical questions is how I render that. Resist ignorant and foolish speculations knowing that they only produce conflict. They produce strife. They produce discord in the church. Titus 3 verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies and strife and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable. They don't lead to peace. They don't lead to love. They don't lead to harmony. James chapter 1, verse 20. We looked at this a few months ago. He says, the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. Your own anger, your own strife, your own striving, your own conflicts don't produce peace. You're not going to produce peace through anger. You're in conflict with somebody, you get angry with them, and the anger you have towards them is not going to produce peace. They're not going to say, oh, I disagree with you, but now I see how upset you are about it, and so you've won me over. You can't bad attitude somebody into a good attitude. You know this as a parent, right? Have a good time right now. (laughs) The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The Greek in verse 1 is really terse. Caustic, really. It reeks of credulity. What causes quarrels and what causes fights? It's two words. Whence quarrels? Whence fights? It's, you know, again, the parenting language. You walk into the house and you see just debris everywhere, (laughs) clothes everywhere, dish broken, and then you walk in and you're like, what is this? Where did this come from? What do you mean, where did it come from? (laughs) That's how James begins. Where, from where, but it's implied whence is how the King James translates it. And I think it's it's the closest word we have to that. Whence this? (laughs) Whence fights? Whence quarrels? From where did this get here? The images of James showing up at the early church and there being 
fights and quarrels and him going, how? How? Where did the fights come from? Where did the quarrels come from? Why isn't there peace here? And if God is sovereign over this whole thing, if this church belongs to him, why isn't he bringing peace in here? You know, there's two, two categories of things in the church. There is the gospel, God, Christ, his word, and people. So which one of those brings conflict into the church? It's not the gospel. So let me give you an outline this morning. Why doesn't God give me peace? Why doesn't God grant the peace that you're looking for? You want peace in your life? You want peace in church? Why doesn't God grant it? I think people are like porcupines. You put two of them together close enough and they will hurt each other. <laughs> and that's true in the, the church as well. God wants his church to have peace, but often it's not here. James is going to give us some reasons why. First, the reason God doesn't give you peace is because you're fighting. <laughs> because you're fighting. And this is an axiomatic kind of answer. And that's what James gives. What causes strifes and, and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You know, it's like Joab. I don't know why we don't have peace. I just keep killing people. I don't know why God doesn't give me peace. All I, all I want is to fight for things. All I want is my things. If, if everybody would just listen to me, I'd have peace. I don't know why we don't have peace around here. You don't have peace because you're fighting, James says. That, that language, your passions are at war. Notice the conflict phrase. They're, they're at war inside of you. The word that the ESV renders passions, it's a, it's a Greek word that has just jumped into English. Sometimes they say we get an English word from a Greek word. This isn't one of those cases. This is where the Greek word became an English word. The Greek word is uh, hedonai, hedonism. And it's a very interesting word. It's a, it's a desire that starts in you and ends in you. You would expect here the Greek word to be epithymia, which is how, wh where the word passions normally is translated. When normally in the English, when you see passions or desires, it's the Greek word uh, thumia, epi, being strong. And it, that just means a, you know, desire, lust or hunger or uh, laziness. They're all epithymia, the desire for intimacy, the desire for food, the desire for, for sleep. Intensified, it becomes a, a sinful desire. You would expect that to be the word here, but that's not what he says because those thumias, those desires all have you know, an object in mind. You want sleep. You want intimacy. You want food because you, it's circular. Like it goes out of you and then back to you. I want that to make me. But this word, hedonai, it stays inside of you. It's an internal desire with an internal termination. It's not even that you want other things. It's just that you want you. It's what makes you happy. You want happiness. You want delight, you want comfort, you want wealth, you want all kinds of things, but it's all inside of you. You just want it in here. It gets translated passions, but the word hedonism is fine. It's because you are a hedonist. You want pleasure. It doesn't even matter what the object is. There's conflict and there's strife in your life because your hedonism is at war. Now, why is your hedonism at war? Because it never gives you what you want. <laughs> and we understand that. The person who loves money will never have enough money. The person who loves power will never have enough power. The person who loves 
working hard will never work hard enough. The person who loves time with family will never have enough time with family, right? The person who says, oh, I, would give, I can't give to the church because I don't have enough money. I don't make enough. If I made more, I'd, I'd, I'd be more generous. And I would never tell somebody to, you know, that can't afford to give to give. I'm, I'm not a TV preacher. <laughs> but when I hear that kind of thing, it just it strikes me as just hollow. When would you have enough? When I have X amount in savings, then I would start giving. Is that going to be true even? When you get close to that amount in savings, you don't start giving, you spend more. The person says, I just need more political power, and then I'd be happy. When I first moved to D.C., Steve Hawley told me, you just need to learn this lesson. Every presidential election is the most important election ever. Everyone, without exception. Have you ever heard of a politician who says, you know, if I win this, this election and my party gets power, we won't, we won't run again. We'll do whatever we, we'll accomplish everything we want, and then we'll, we'll give the other guys a turn. It was fun for four years. Now somebody else can take a turn because we, we've had enough power. You never have enough power. You just want to be treated right at work. Will you ever be treated well enough? Ever? You just want your kids to turn out well and then you'll be happy. You make that an idol. Will your kids ever turn out well enough for you? No. You just want time with your family. Will you ever have enough? No. It's drinking salt water. They will never satisfy. And so what does it do? What does that desire do? You, be, you focus on it and you want the money or you want the power or you want the, the relationships. And so you focus on that and you pursue that for satisfaction and it does not satisfy. And I think we understand that conceptually with other people, but not with us. <laughs> we think, no, I really do want this thing and it actually will satisfy me. No, it won't. It will not. And that leads to these, this war inside of you and that war doesn't stay inside of you, does it? It goes outside of you. And you see that in verse two. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And one commentator describes these two sins as desire and coveting as the twin sisters of evil. Some translations render it envy and coveting. Or here the ESV does desire and coveting. One is seeing something that you want in somebody else and wanting it, you could almost say it's jealous for it. And the other is coveting, you, you starting to pursue it, you building your life around it. So one wants the object, and the other gets angry at people in the way of the object. That's the difference. Coveting wants this, this idea. It says, here's X, and I really want that. That's coveting. And then desire, or envy, however your translation does it, that's the idea to tear down any obstacle. I want this, so I'm coveting it, and either this person has it, so I tear down that person, or this person's in the way of it, so I tear that person down. Earlier I said people are most like porcupines. Spurgeon said, what animal is a, a man most like? A sea anemone. Spurgeon, a sea anemone. <laughs> He's got his tentacles out and he's just grabbing. He just wants 
more. He's always hunting for more. Peter says, 1 Peter 2.11, Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So that sinful desire is waging war. It's becoming hostile to you. It's taking its war. The war in James 4 verse 1, Peter says it is against your soul. So Peter fills in the dots here. You have these sinful desires, you're coveting, and now you're angry at other people because you want things, and so that becomes a war in your soul. And it starts, again, it starts internal because it's hedonistic. It starts inside of you, but it soon spills the banks. Bitterness towards others, hostility towards others. Jerry Bridges in the book Respectable Sins that we talked about last week, he points out that this kind of envy and, and coveting and jealousy, it's usually directed at people who are most like you. You don't get angry with somebody who disagrees with you if they disagree with you on everything. But if they agree with you on 95% of things, you get so angry at that 5%. <laughs> the mid-range salesman, the mid-range salesman, the guy who does you know, $100,000 a year in sales, he doesn't get jealous and angry and covet the CEO in his life and his positions. He gets jealous and angry and, and bitter at the person just like him, the guy with $105,000 a year in sales. He get, why, did that, why did that client go to him and not me? Because you see in somebody almost your, yourself and you want what that person has he just says a little more than you think. That's all that I need, that little bit more. Paul says in Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, don't be surprised if you're consumed by one another. You start snipping at each other, biting at each other because you see something you want and you don't have and so you go after it. Jerry Bridges, <laughs> also in that Respectable Sins, he talks about another speaker who with the same education and same, written the same number of books about another speaker got invited to a conference that he didn't get invited to. He gets so angry at that person. But then he realized, you know, I don't even want to go there. <laughs> I would have said no if they would have invited me. I just would have liked the ability to say no first. <laughs> but we're like that. And then you bite and you devour and you tear each other down. Where does that go? In verse 2, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. Now, first, let me say this. Let me back into this from the rest of verse 2. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You understand in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says when you have this hatred towards another person, you are guilty of murder. It's, this, it's not that you deserve to go to jail. It's not that you deserve to be executed for murder. What he's saying is that the same sin, and you follow that with adultery. You look at a woman with lust in your eye, you're, you're guilty of adultery. Not because you've actually done the act, of course, that would be silly, but because the sin, the capacity for sin that results in adultery is resident in your heart. The capacity for sin that results in murder is resident in the heart that hates. So Jesus says, if you call your brother Raka, fool, recognize that you stand in that sense condemned by God for murder because it's the same sin. The only difference between calling him fool and actually striking him down is uh, external and extension circumstances that are restraining you. You don't want to get caught. You fear punishment, which are fine. I mean, that's common grace. God puts those into the world. 
You don't murder everybody that you're angry with because you don't want to go to jail. You don't want to ruin your life. And you recognize they're in the image of God too. And you have all these constraints. But the point is the fountain of murder is in the heart that says that guy is a fool. I want what he has. And James takes it and downshifts a bit. I want what he has. And so I would kill him for it. Now, clearly, he's talking in Sermon on the Mount terms. He doesn't mean that you've all actually done the murder deed. He means that when you say that person's a fool or you get jealous with someone for having something which you want, you would strike him down. If you could, it's that same fountain of evil. But it's not hyperbolic all the time, is it? You think of, in the sense, it's so easy to do with the cultural sins. You think of the, you think of the slave owners that tracked down their slaves and murdered them. For what? For what? You're not going to get more work out of him if he's dead. Because you're so in love with power. You're so in love with wealth. You're so in love with your stuff. And here's a human being that stands in the way of it. And so you would murder him. And justify it in your mind. You think of abortion. The same sin. I want something. I have a desire of what I want. I have a desire of who I want to be. I have this concept of my power and my freedom and what I deserve. And and here's a human being that stands in the way of that. Well, I'll, I'll take her out. I'll take him out. Be back at work for lunch. You desire and you covet and you don't have And so you murder. I mean, where does that come from? It comes from greed. It comes from coveting. Now, not all of this drama is played out publicly, of course. Some people are too sophisticated to actually murder. But those who don't lash out, that drama just stays in the heart. That conflict stays inside. Well, One reason you don't have peace is because you're fighting. Second reason that God doesn't give you peace is because you're not asking. God's not giving you peace because you're not asking him to. I've had this experience before. I've gotten off the plane and sent my wife a text message. Hey, landed. Uh, You want me to come home or should I go to church first or something like that? And I don't get an answer. Well, I need to know this. Why isn't she answering? Doesn't she care? What What if I'm hungry? I got to know if there's dinner at home or should I stop somewhere or should I go do some stuff? Does she know I'm busy? I can go to a church. Why, why isn't she answering? Oh, I never turned the airplane mode off. <laughs> that message never actually got out there, just sitting there on my phone. Huh. I know I shouldn't answer now, though. Why isn't God answering your, your prayers? First question, did you actually pray? Sometimes people think, why isn't God giving me, uh? Did you ask for, uh? Did you actually pray? And that's what James says here. You you don't have these things. Why not? Because you didn't even ask. You didn't even ask. 
How should you respond to coveting in your life? How should you respond to that jealousy and that desire in your life? Step one, pray. Ask God to help. Ask God to help you with the strife. Ask God to help you with that battle. You've got the war going on in your heart. You've got the war going on in your church. Step one, pray and say, God, please help. It's a great place to start. But often we don't pray because of practical atheism. We don't think it will do any good. You get up in the morning, you think, should I pray? Should I have my time with the Lord or should I go to the gym? Well, if I go to the gym, I'll at least be a little bit more in shape. If I pray, what do I get out of that? Or you wake up in the morning, you get your list of three things I really need today. Three things I need to accomplish. I need to do these things today. It's on my mind. You wake up and you're ready to go. You've got them in your mind. What do you do? Do you pray? Or do you go get on those things? Let me just go do them. You can think of the reverse analogy. Person is looking outside at their yard and their grass is too long and their grass needs to be mowed and so I should go mow my grass. Instead of mowing my grass, let me pray the Lord would reduce my grass. <laughs> so I'm not going to work. I'm going to pray. Sounds so spiritual. And it's funny, and, I, and I'm glad it's funny. I wish we had that problem more. I wish there were more people who weren't cutting their grass because they were praying. What a nice problem to have. Rather err on that side than the person who says, oh, I'm going to go cut my grass. I'm going to go do things because praying is not going to do any good. Why would I pray for it if I could just go do it myself? Prayer is not natural. What is natural is we're motivated to go do what we want to do, so we, we don't naturally turn to the Lord in prayer. But notice in failing to pray, you're making it into an idol. What, what into an idol? Well, yourself. You're making yourself into an idol. Because you don't need God to help you do X, Y, and Z when you can just go do it for yourself. So who then is your God? You. Why bother praying when I can just be my own God? What a contrast to our Lord, who of course you know, said he did everything his father sent him to do, and his ministry was three years long. So you want to talk about a to-do list. Jesus had one, and he did it all. But he rose early in the morning to pray, and he stayed up late at night to pray. He went to quiet places to pray. His life was marked by prayer. And if you're not praying, you're not going to have peace. God's not granting your prayers for peace if you're not asking him for it. So you've got conflict and strife in your heart. Pray to God for help, but he's not answering because you're not praying. Sometimes I'll ask my, my wife for advice about something, conflict at church or with a friend or some situation, a decision I have to make. And her go-to response is, well, did you pray about it? And I have to deal with some issues in my heart right then when she asks me that question. Did I pray about it? Of course I thought about praying about it. Did I pray about it? I don't know, did you pray about it? <laughs> Talk to me about it. Did you pray? Well, you just told me a few seconds ago. And it's not a trite question. Did you pray about it? It's not a trite question, especially from a wife or a husband. It's not a trite question. It's self-defense. Because if I'm asking her something that I care about and I'm wrapped up into the situation and she doesn't answer how I want her to answer, where do you think the conflict's going to come out? Who's going to receive the conflict first? Her. 
And so did you pray about it is her self-defense mechanism. <laughs> I don't want conflict with you about this, so you better pray about it before you, you get right with the Lord in this and then we'll talk about it. <laughs> but if you're not praying, you're not gonna have peace. First, you don't have peace because you're fighting. Second, you don't have peace because you're not asking. Third, you don't have peace because you don't actually want it. You don't really want peace. You know, God doesn't answer all of our prayers with a yes, of course. He answers some of them with no. And I think largely is because you're not praying for the right thing. And you don't actually, and the Greek word here is you, you ask, in the NAS it says you ask with wrong motives, but it's, it's not really a, the right translation of this. The ESV says because you ask wrongly, and that's, that's better. It's an, it's an adverb. It's one word, kakos in the Greek, which just means bad. And it means bad morally, like something is morally bad. And so James says, you don't have because you don't ask. And then you ask, and you don't get it because you ask kakos. You ask badly. And that doesn't mean that you're not articulate in how you're asking. It means your morals are all messed up. You're, you're asking improperly based on the morals of the thing. You're asking wrongly. And he goes on to explain what he means with the, the end of the verse, to spend it on your own passions, back in your own hedonism. You're asking back for yourself, and that's why you're not getting the answer you want. <laughs> Like a person who says, man, I've asked 20 people for advice and nobody's telling me what I want to hear. What's wrong with all my friends? James deals with this in chapter one, remember? You're going through a trial. Ask God for wisdom about your trial and he'll give it. Now, oftentimes the Lord is taking you through a trial to cleanse you and sanctify you to purify you, to cause you to grow in maturity. And so you're going through a trial and you think, what's God doing here? And so you say illness, cancer. So you're praying to God to take your cancer away. But God's not taking your cancer away. Why not? Well, because that's not what he's doing. He's sanctifying you. He's growing you. He's clarifying you. He's purifying you, stripping away things in your life. It's not that you're going through sickness or illness to punish you. Of course not. It's not because you have a sin that you need to confess of or anything like that. That's Job's, the fallacy of Job's friends. That's not why you're going through a trial. But you are going through a trial because God's doing something that is for your good and for his glory. You don't know what. I mean, it could be affecting other people in positive ways. You'll never find that out. But at the very least, you know that God is bringing you through the trial to sanctify you. So how is he sanctifying you? That's what you pray about and that's where you get answers. You pray about it and you get your answers that way. It doesn't mean that God's gonna tell you all of his mysteries, but your prayers start there. But instead, if you pray for him to take away the trial, then you're not gonna have the right answer because you're praying based on your own selfish ambition there. And let me even change it around a little bit. There's a war. Remember, there's a war. You can have contentment in Christ. You could say, I want to know more about Christ and grow in godliness and sanctification. Or I could have contentment in my house. I want a better house. I'm just choosing an example. I want a better house. Yeah, my house is, you know, this big. But I have a friend who has my same job, my same salary, and he has a much bigger house. So why don't I have that house that he has? And so you say, I, I want that house. I would be happy if I had that house. I could be happy in the gospel in Christ, or I could be happy in that house. And you begin to lie to yourself and say, they're not, they're not antithetical. They're both. Hey, Jesus would probably want me to be happy in a better house. Okay, and so now you start praying. 
God, please help me have a better house. Jesus, I'm looking at you, but I want that house over there. Why do you want that house? Because you would be happier in that house, you think. Now, we all know back from earlier that if you did get the house, you wouldn't be any happier, right? We know this, but it doesn't help us at the time. And so then you even start negotiating. Jesus, I know you like X, Y, and Z, so I will do X, Y, and Z so that I can get that house. I'll go on a mission trip. I'll give more to church. I'll share the gospel with three strangers. I read my Bible every day for that house. So you might even take a step towards the Lord, but you're looking over at the house. (laughs) And you're praying for it, and then God doesn't answer it. And then you say, why aren't you answering my prayers? Now, it's one thing to say, because you're praying for the wrong thing. But it's not even as simple as that. There's something even more, I think, profound than that going on. It's not just that you're praying for the house instead of to grow more in the Lord and so he's not answering. What does the Lord want from you? For you to grow in your contentment with him. For you to grow in your satisfaction with him. For you to grow in godliness and sanctification. So it's not just that you're not praying for the right thing. Notice that what you're praying for is quite literally the opposite of what the Lord wants. In fact, it's the enemy of what he wants for you. If the war in your heart is between contentment in Christ or contentment in things, and you're praying for contentment in things, and you're mad at Christ for not giving it, it's not just that you're praying for the wrong thing, it's that you are asking God to give you what will actually harm both you and his goal for you. You understand this with children, the child who says, can I have candy for dinner? I want candy for dinner. Well, there's off off in a first step, the child steals the candy. You walk in and the child has the candy. No, what are you doing with the candy? You didn't ask. Put that back. You did not ask. And so the child puts it back and says, can I have candy for dinner? And you say, no. (laughs) I thought you said I didn't ask. You didn't ask. But still, the answer is no. (laughs) Well, you don't love me. Now, at that moment, if the parent were to give the child candy for dinner, is that an act of love? No, it's an act of laziness. I don't want a parent. I don't want to deal with this. So, oh, you know how she is. She cries when she doesn't get her candy. So here she goes. Laziness. So at the very like bare minimum parenting would be, no, you don't get candy for dinner. Maybe after dinner. At least look at a chicken nugget and then have your candy. (laughs) It's like the low bar right there. (laughs) But if your goal is for the child to be healthy, then the candy is the enemy of that. So it's not even that you didn't ask or that you're asking out of something selfish ambition. It's that what you're asking for is actually contrary to what the parent wants. And so now this grows all the way up with you. You're, you're a grown up. you're a real live adult and everything. And you're asking God for something and you're wondering why he's not giving it to you. Has it occurred to you that what you're asking for is actually the enemy of what God wants for you? That's James's point. You're asking wrongly. And so if you're searching for the wrong thing, you're drinking from the wrong fountain. You're you're drinking from a fountain that can't satisfy your thirst. It's not the fountain that God gave you. It's not what he wants you to drink from. You're drinking from it anyway, and you're asking him to satisfy your thirst from it. It's not even designed for it. You know, it's not that you're knocking on the door and God's not letting you in. It's that you're rocking at the wrong house. (laughs) And probably, according to point two, you're not even really knocking. 
If you're hungry for stuff, it produces conflict in your life, is James's point. You're hungry for things, it produces strife. You're hungry for power, it produces conflict in your heart and then in your church. But if you're hungry for God, it produces peace. That's James 3, verse 18. You can look at it again. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Remember, when James is written, there's no chapter breaks, there's no verse divisions. This would be hanging over the whole thing. If you're working for peace, if you're after righteousness, you will have peace. Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. The heathen do that. Instead, seek first his righteousness. Then all the things you want will be given to you. Not because then you'll get the house, but because then you're planting seeds of righteousness and that's what you'll harvest. Lord, we're thankful that you are a God of peace and order. That you want your children to have peace. You want your children to live in a world, at least in a church, where there is love and order and deference to one another. But we know that when deference is lacking, it's often because of envy and selfish ambition and strife and hedonism. And so we pray that you would help us identify the hedonism in our own hearts, the prayerlessness in our own lives, and that you would put our affections rightly on you. Cause us to grow this week more and more in love with you. Help us to seek your kingdom first the righteousness that's in your kingdom, knowing that you then will give us the desires of our heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.